Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. And away we go, episode 78 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Monday, June 7th, 2021. Hope you had a nice weekend. We went from freezing for much of Memorial Day weekend to sweating like hogs this past weekend. Sweating like Steven Strasburg this past weekend. Nobody sweats like Strasburg, although these days he's probably not sweating given that he's back on the 10-day injured list. Well, we went to a party on Sunday. No masks. It was the first time since this uh, wonderful, totally understandable, totally and completely unavoidable pandemic happened that we went somewhere, did something that felt truly like something we would have done pre-pandemic. No masks, no social distancing. Everything was normal. It was great. It was wonderful. Normal is good. It's nice to be normal. Uh, I got asked by a listener of the podcast at the party what I think the Washington football team's new name will be. And I said Warriors. That just has felt like the name that the team wants. But, you know, I was thinking about this at the party. Actually, while taking my my three-year-old son to pee, uh, I don't know why this came to me then, but it did. Uh, that day, the day on which we learn what the new name is, whatever the new name is, that's going to be someday. Huh? I mean, we've had a million major news days with the Washington football team over the years, but the day on which we learn of the new name will be different. That's as fundamental as it gets, right? The name of the team, what we are to call the team moving forward. Although I know some of you will always say Redskins, but that's going to be a monumental day. When that day comes, who knows? In the meantime, we'll just keep saying Washington over and over and over again. And that will never sound natural. I don't care how many times I say it, and I probably say it a thousand times a week on this podcast. Washington this, Washington that. We need a name. 
Washington football team is not a name. Washington is a distant, cold, onerous word to say. Three syllables. Washington. Too many. Anyway, speaking of Washington, the team's mandatory minicamp is this week, Tuesday through Thursday. And on this installment of the show, next segment, in fact, I will be getting into the big news on Friday. Training camp is back in Richmond, although just for five days, the first five days, the rest of camp will take place in Ashburn. I have a lot to say about this, including a larger theme about Ron Rivera and Dan Snyder that the Richmond news continues. Also, special guest on the pod, Jordan Asri, the man behind the very popular Twitter account, WF Team Jordan, and the very popular Instagram account, Football Team Today. He just turned 22, and he, through the power of social media, has developed quite the following, so much so that players on the team follow him and retweet him. Who is this guy? How has he done what he's done? And what does he think about the Washington football team? My chat with Jordan is on the way. I'll talk Nationals later in the show. Another bad weekend for the Nats, dropping two or three at the Philadelphia Phillies. A bullpen game on Sunday afternoon ended up being an absolute disaster. And in more ways than one, four of the seven relievers used by the Nats, Sam Clay, Kyle Finnegan, Paolo Espino, and Tanner Rainey, combined to allow 12 runs, eight earned, in three innings. We have a phrase for that on this show. The phrase comes to us from Steve Spurrier. Not very good. No. No, it's not. I'll talk Orioles late in the show. A second consecutive series victory for the O's. Cedric Mullins went out of his mind over the last two games, although John Means now is on the 10-day injured list. And I'll have some Wizards thoughts for you before the end of the show, including thoughts on an historic hiring announced on Friday. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. So big news in the NFL on Sunday. The Atlanta Falcons agreeing to trade receiver Julio Jones to the Tennessee Titans. And how about the terms of the trade? Not that steep. The trade is the Falcons sending Jones and a 2023 six-round pick to the Titans for a 2022 second-round pick and a 2023 fourth-round pick. So the Titans get Jones and a six for just a two and a four, and the four isn't until 2023. I gave to you uh, my parameters for the Washington football team potentially trading for Julio Jones, and I am totally fine with Washington having not done this trade, even though, like I said, the cost ends up not being that steep. But one of my parameters was the trade compensation for Jones, including neither a first nor a second round pick. Well, the trade does end up including a second round pick. So I am good with this. Washington not trading for Julio Jones. I get that he's an all-time great, uh, but I also do get that Julio Jones is going into his age 32 season. He, this past season, played in just nine games for the Falcons due to a lingering hamstring injury. So yeah, man, big money receiver already in his 30s, coming off a season in which he played in just nine games due to a lingering hamstring injury. There are some reasons here to be concerned. Now, do I think Julio Jones can still play? Absolutely, I do. Uh, If you're a Titans fan, should you be excited about this? Yeah, I think you should be. But listen, man, Washington has got to be smart. Washington is not in a position of, you have to win right now, okay? You'd like to win right now. I think you can win right now, but you're not sacrificing the long term for the short term. And to me, second round picks matter. 
I know second round picks have not worked out well for the Washington football team for a decade plus now, but that's not a reason not to have second round picks. That's a reason to do a better job on second round picks. And hopefully that has begun, especially with Washington taking Samuel Cosby in the second round of the 2021 NFL draft. But that was notable. It's not like the Titans had to give up, you know, a first round pick to get Julio Jones. That's a pretty humbling package that the Falcons ended up getting back from the Titans for Julio Jones. Because the terms of the deal matter, just like the terms of your deal with your real estate agent matter when you sell your house. One of the great supporters of this podcast, John Grandland of Real Broker, is the person to whom you should turn if you need to sell your home and aren't sure to whom to turn. Or if you've been trying to sell your home and you're not satisfied with how things are going, even if you're just thinking about selling your home, contact John Grandland, a.k.a. John G. And understand this, whereas Ron Rivera has position flex, John Grandland has commission flex. Position flex. Yes, Ron, you have position flex. John G. has commission flex. Understand, not every home requires the same amount of work or money spent marketing. So why should you pay the same fees? It doesn't make sense. It's never made sense. If your home is going to sell in six minutes, you shouldn't have to pay 6%. That's been ridiculous, and yet it's been going on forever. Let John Grandlin put a marketing plan together for you that will maximize your home's value and help you to keep more of your hard-earned equity in your pocket. You see, John Grandlin has a menu of commission packages that you can choose from, including selling your home for free. Yes, you heard that right. For free, some conditions apply. Interviewing John Grandlin is an absolute no-brainer. He can come by your house, give you a step-by-step plan on what to do to get top dollar, and maybe even more importantly, what not to do so you don't spend needlessly, and there's never any obligation to list or sell. Do yourself a favor and call John Grandlin. He will sell your home guaranteed. That's right, guaranteed. He guarantees the sale of your home. Call John G. at 703-537-6747. Forty-seven. That's seven zero three five three seven sixty-seven forty-seven. Make sure you tell them that Al Galdi sent you, and make sure you tell them that you want what you heard about on the Al Galdi podcast. The commission flex. Position flex. Yes, Ron. Exactly. You can also check out John Grandland online at John G sells for free dot com. That's John G sells for free dot com. John Grandland, nobody will do a better job of selling your home. And remember, he is the master of commission flex. All right, so we had big news from the Washington football team on Friday. Washington announcing that the team's 2021 training camp will begin in Richmond. Yes, back to the RVA is the team now known as as the WFT. Washington will begin training camp on July 27th in Richmond and stay there through July 31st. The rest of Washington's 2021 training camp will take place at the team's headquarters in Ashburn. Four of the five training camp days in Richmond, the last four, will be open to the public, including Fan Appreciation Day on Saturday, July 31st. So we had been wondering when and where Washington football team training camp would be taking place. And now we know. Uh, The when is that the training camp will be beginning on July 27th. The where is a split location of Richmond and Ashburn. So this will be the eighth time in nine years that at least some of Washington's training camp 
will take place in Richmond. Washington's training camp history includes, of course, the decades-long run in Carlisle, Dickinson College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, 1963 through 1994. If you are a longtime Washington fan, you know the word Carlisle and what that means and the images and memories that that conjures up because Carlisle is a word, a link to the glory days, right? George Allen, Joe Gibbs, etc. Washington was at Carlisle for three decades plus, 63 through 94, then went to Frostburg State in Frostburg, Maryland for five years, 1995 through 1999, then was the one-season move to Skins Park in Ashburn, 2000, the first training camp with Dan Snyder as owner, the infamous training camp for which the Donnie, remember, charged fans to attend. First off, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Yes, we will never forget that. Training camp in the year 2000. Then Washington went back to Carlisle, back to Dickinson College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania for two years, 2001 and 2002. Then came an extended run of Washington training camp at Skins Park in Ashburn. That was from 2003 through 2012. And then came the run in Richmond, the Bon Secours Training Center in Richmond, 2013 through 2019. Last year, Washington, of course, held training camp in Ashburn due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And now this year, the split location of the Bon Secours Training Center in Richmond and Washington football team headquarters in Ashburn. Now, personally, I have found the idea of an NFL team going away for training camp as some ultra-unifying experience to be overrated for years. I am willing to believe that back in the day, there was something to NFL teams going away for training camps. There wasn't much in the way of NFL players training in off-seasons back in the day. There were no OTA practices or off-season minicamps back in the day. Training camps back in the day were marked with, you know, hardcore two-a-day practices and were how players got in shape and how teams installed their offenses, defenses, and special teams. Training camps back in the day were really important and were ultra-necessary. Training camps back in the day were how teams came together. But all of this changed. As training camps became less taxing, as players started training more and more in off-seasons, and as we got OTA practices and off-season minicamps. And the idea of teams going away for training camps, acting as some unifying experience, to me has become dubious at best. First of all, plenty of teams have done training camps at team facilities for years and done just fine. The New England Patriots, in case you don't know, through the 2020 season, had done their training camps at Gillette Stadium in Foxborough, Massachusetts for 18 consecutive seasons, 2003 through 2020. The greatest dynasty in NFL history, the Bill Belichick, Tom Brady, Pats dynasty. The bulk of that dynasty has featured Pats training camps taking place at home at Gillette Stadium. Okay, so the Pats haven't needed it to go away for training camps. Also, this idea of NFL teams going away for training camps, unifying those teams, is anecdotal at best. And just think about Washington, okay? Washington went away to training camp in Richmond again from 2013 through 2019. How did Washington do over those seven seasons? Five losing seasons out of seven seasons, including three double-digit loss seasons, three and 13 in 2013, four and 12 
in 2014, 3 and 13 in 2019. Washington went 7 and 25 over the first two years of holding training camp in Richmond. The 2016 team, yes, went 8, 7, and 1, but had major problems among the defensive backs in being dead last in the NFL in third down defense. You know, this idea of like coming together, if training camp away brings you together, how come Washington had so many bad teams over the seven seasons in Richmond? How come Washington had so many dysfunctional teams over the seven seasons in Richmond? It's all anecdotal. Teams being unified, that has to do with coaching and the players on those teams. It has nothing to do, in my opinion anyway, with where the team does training camp. But regarding Ron Rivera and Dan Snyder, here are the two key points about Washington beginning its 2021 training camp in Richmond. Number one, Washington is not getting paid to hold part of its 2021 training camp in Richmond and in fact is paying money out. Washington's initial deal with Richmond, the deal for those seven training camps 2013 through 2019, as you may know, featured Richmond covering the cost of the Bon Secours Training Center and featured Richmond paying Washington $500,000 per year to conduct training camp in Richmond. This was as much a money grab as anything, Washington conducting training camp in Richmond. This arrangement now for 2021 reportedly is Washington actually paying Richmond $100,000 to rent out the Bon Secours Training Center, and Washington is not getting $500,000 no more. Point number two, Washington is incurring the cost of paying the $100,000 to rent out the Bon Secours Training Center, and keep in mind the cost of shipping equipment to Richmond for just five days of training camp. These costs would be one thing if Washington was holding the entirety of training camp in Richmond. These costs are another thing, given that Washington is only going to be in Richmond for five days, July 27th through July 31st. Like, think about that. All of that money, all of that effort for just five days. So Washington, in essence, is sacrificing a lot to conduct just five days of training camp in Richmond. Why is this? Well, perhaps there are political reasons for Washington doing this, i.e. wanting to stay in the good graces of Virginia as the team's quest for a new stadium continues, right? If you're trying to get the best deal possible for the Washington football team's next stadium, it makes sense to be in the good graces of Virginia, Washington, D.C., and Maryland and try to play the three sides against each other as best you can. But to me, there are holes in this line of thinking, this notion of the reason Washington is holding part of its training camp in Richmond this year is to stay in the good graces of Virginia. Keep in mind, Richmond was not happy with the way the arrangement had been working out. Richmond was paying Washington $500,000 a year and wasn't making back that payment. Uh, the return on investment was not what the city of Richmond thought it would be because people just weren't attending these Washington training camps for a variety of reasons. But here's the thing. While I'm sure Washington wants to be in a good way with the city of Richmond and with the state of Virginia, you could very much argue that it's more Virginia that needs to stay in the good graces of the Washington football team than vice versa. And that is for this reason. And it's a reason that almost never gets talked about. Virginia, for decades, has reaped the benefits of Washington executives, coaches, and players living in Virginia. Because Washington's team facility has been in Ashburn for forever, you have had it for forever, basically, that Washington executives, coaches, and players have lived in Virginia. Think about the many 
millions of dollars that have been brought to the state of Virginia in tax revenue because of this. All of the income tax revenue, all of the property tax revenue of, again, Washington executives, coaches, and players, people making many millions of dollars for decades living in the state of Virginia. Like this thing of the Washington football team owes it to Richmond, owes it to Virginia. How about the state of Virginia actually owes it to the Washington football team for, again, who knows how many millions of dollars that have been brought to the state in tax revenue over the decades because of Washington executives, coaches, and players living in the state of Virginia. So I'm not sure that there's a ton to this notion of the Washington football team feeling this pressure to assuage the city of Richmond or assuage the state of Virginia because that initial run in Richmond didn't work out so well for the city of Richmond. So what we're left with is Ron Rivera and him wanting at least part of the Washington football team's 2021 training camp in Richmond. Ron Rivera, in theory, thinking that there is value in conducting part of training camp in Richmond. Whether he's right about that doesn't matter. Like I said, I think this whole thing about going away for training camp, bringing a team together is fake news at this point, but that's not the point. Ron may not think that. He, in theory, wanted at least some of Washington's training camp in Richmond, and he's getting it. Even though conducting just five days of training camp in Richmond isn't a win for the team financially. Washington beginning its 2021 training camp in Richmond is quite possibly a football over money decision. And if in fact that is the case, this is just the latest example of something that should not be ignored. Ron Rivera is getting Dan Snyder to spend on things that Dan previously had not spent on. Think about the revamping of the Washington front office this offseason. Washington this offseason, right, hiring three former NFL general managers. Now, look, more isn't always better, but Washington in the ownership tenure of the Donnie has for years had a reputation for being understaffed in the front office. Whatever you think about Bruce Allen, it was ridiculous that he, for a good chunk of his time with the team, presided over both football and business operations. It means you're close. Yes, Brucey, exactly. Like, again, I'm not saying you need to feel sympathy for Bruce. I'm not saying you need to lose sleep over this. But it was a little absurd that Bruce Allen, one man, okay, a limited man, was in charge of both football operations and business operations for a good chunk of his time with Washington. How about a guy like Eric Schaefer? Eric Schaefer's final title with Washington was Senior Vice President of Football Operations slash General Counsel. So he had a big part in football operations, but he also was essentially the team's lawyer. He was the senior vice president of football operations slash general counsel. So you had Bruce in charge of football operations and business operations. You had Eric Schaefer as a senior vice president of football operations slash general counsel. People doing multiple things at the same time. And you've got to think those things suffered because one person can only do so much. You know, think about, too, that initial article by the Washington Post on the sexual harassment scandal, the article that came out last July 16th. One of the many nuggets in that article was the nugget of the absurdity that was Dan Snyder having had an understaffed human resources department. Okay, this is a franchise worth billions of dollars. Washington, the football team. And you have an understaffed human resources department. Read you a brief excerpt from that article. Quote, the team's human resources staff consists 
of one full-time staffer who also performs administrative duties at team headquarters responsible for more than 220 full-time employees, according to several former employees, end quote. Again, Washington, the football team, multi-billion dollar operation in terms of the valuation of the franchise. And the Donnie had, per the Post article last July 16th, one full-time staffer in human resources. And the one full-time staffer also happened to be performing administrative duties at team headquarters. And the one full-time staffer was responsible for, again, more than 220 full-time employees. The irony of Dan Snyder as an owner, and this is not an irony that is exclusive to him. We have seen this with many sports owners over the years, including, say, the learners with the Nationals. The owners have no problem spending millions of dollars on players, but the owners have big problems spending extra tens of thousands of dollars just to beef up the front offices or beef up team headquarters. I mean, it really is remarkable when you think about that. But with all of this as a backdrop, it certainly stood out, didn't it, that this offseason, Ron got Dan to pay to drastically expand Washington's front office, right? The Washington football team on January 22nd announced the hirings of Marty Herney as executive vice president of football slash player personnel and Martin Mayhew as general manager. Not long after that, February 3rd, the Washington football team during the introductory Zoom press conference for Herney and Mayhew announced the promotion of Eric Stokes to senior director of player personnel. Uh, Not long after that, February 15th, the Washington football team announced the hiring of Chris Polian as director of pro personnel. Three former GMs brought on board in Herney, Mayhew, and Polian, the elevation of Stokes. The front office got beefed up this offseason. That's not cheap. Ron got Dan to pay up when it came to beefing up the Washington football team front office. How about the grass field at FedEx Field? Have you followed this this offseason? Washington football team insider Ben Standig and NFL editor Zach Boyer of The Athletic DC on May 17th reported that the Washington football team in May was beginning the first major reconstruction of FedEx Field's grass surface since the stadium opened in 1997. Let me repeat that. First major reconstruction of FedEx Field's grass surface since the stadium opened in 1997. We all know that the field at FedEx Field has had a horrible reputation forever, right? I mean, the most notorious example of this, the atrocious condition of FedEx Field for Washington's 24-14 loss to the Seattle Seahawks in the wild card game in January 2013, what is known simply as the Seattle game, the game in which Robert Griffin III suffered the torn right ACL and torn right LCL. But it's not just that game. I mean, there's a lot of other stuff out there. Uh, Google Kai Forbath and FedEx Field. Former Washington kicker Kai Forbath, Cobra Kai, in November 2017, said the following of FedEx Field while playing for the Minnesota Vikings, quote, it's dirt, and they spray painted green, it's just not good grass, end quote. Richard Sherman, San Francisco 49ers corner, who was on the Seahawks for the Seattle game, he ripped the conditions at FedEx Field after Washington's 9-0 loss to the 49ers at a very rainy FedEx Field on October 20th, 2019. Quote, that was as bad as I've seen. I've played in the stadium once before in the playoffs, and it was pretty bad. That was the year quarterback Robert Griffin III went down with a knee injury, and the field was pretty awful. It was mostly sand. It was like playing in a sand pit. Today it was rain, and everything was going bad. 
end quote. But here's the biggest point about the reconstruction of the field at FedEx Field. Ron wanted this. This is the doing of Don Ron. Washington football team senior vice president for operations and guest experience, Chris Bloyer, told The Athletic DC that the resurfacing at FedEx Field became a priority shortly after Ron was hired as head coach in January 2020. Also keep in mind that Washington recently completed the reconstruction of the practice fields at the team's headquarters in Ashburn. Pretty clearly, Ron looked around at the fields in Ashburn and at FedEx Field and said, these fields are crap. We got to do something about this. And Washington is, in fact, doing something about this. And this isn't some small undertaking, this reconstruction of the field at FedEx Field. Now, we should be clear, Washington has resotted the field at FedEx Field in recent seasons, but this grass surface reconstruction is the first of its kind since FedEx Field opened in 1997. And the reconstruction was to include the removal of not just the grass layer, but the removal of 14 inches of topsoil and subsoil. All of that was to add up to about 5,000 cubic yards of earth, the capacity of 500 dump trucks. So this is not simple. This is not cheap. But this, in the mind of Ron Rivera, was necessary. He wanted this. He is getting this. There is the micro with the Ron Rivera era, i.e. what's happening now, what's going to happen this coming season. But there also, of course, is the macro with the Ron Rivera era, i.e. where is the Washington football team program overall? When it comes to where the program is overall, nothing matters more than, yes, the culture. And there's been no bigger hindrance to Washington's culture being good than the owner, Dan Snyder. And the culture isn't just about things like, you know, the sexual harassment scandal. The culture is also about things like doing the little things that lead to a professional organization that operates at a high level. And it is way too early to declare victory when it comes to the culture being fixed. And we have to see so much more until we can declare true and ultimate victory for Don Ron. It's important, though, to pay attention for signs along the way. And this offseason, we are seeing signs of the Danny at the behest of Ron doing things differently, spending on things that Dan previously would not spend on, incurring the costs of training camp in Richmond, paying good money, to beef up a front office that was in dire need of beefing up, spending the money to redo the grass surface at FedEx Field and the grass surfaces on the practice fields in Ashburn. All of these things are notable. What do they mean long term? Time will tell. But these things are good things and these things are encouraging. Just like what one of the great friends of this podcast, Dr. George Verghese, has going on. He is the medical director for the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. He is a board-certified dermatologist at Mohs Surgeons. So the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland focuses on medical dermatology and skin cancer diagnosis and comprehensive care, including something very special and cutting-edge, superficial radiation therapy, or SRT. SRT is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. SRT is revolutionary. It's a non-surgical skin cancer treatment 
that's safe and effective. See, understand, having skin cancer doesn't mean having to have surgery and the downtime and side effects that go with surgery. You have options. Understand that a non-surgical option in SRT is available. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer SRT, unlike many other dermatology practices in the area, and SRT is covered by most insurances. To find out more, call 301 396 3401. Make sure you tell them that Al Galdi sent you. That phone number again, 301-396-3401, or visit midatlanticskin.com. That's midatlanticskin.com. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid-Atlantic region. So if you are a Washington football team fan and you are on social media, there's a very good chance that you're familiar with the work of the man who joins me now, Jordan Azri. He just turned 22. His Twitter account, which thankfully was recently unsuspended by the Twitter gods at WFTeamJordan, has more than 23,000 followers. His Instagram account, at FootballTeamToday, has 128,000 followers. And he joins me now on the Al Galdi podcast. Jordan, it's nice to talk to you, man. How you doing? Good. Thanks for having me on, Al. I appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on. So this is really impressive. The following you've established without the help of, you know, being on TV or being on the radio or anything like that. How have you done it? How have you put together uh, this cult of Jordan Asri over the last few years here? It's really an, a special accomplishment. Well, again, I appreciate it. But um, I mean, it really all started uh, when I was a sophomore in high school. A lot of uh, not too many Redskins slash football team fans in New Jersey, as I'm sure you know. Um, but I made the account just so I could, you know, interact with other Redskins fans because you can't do too much of that here in New Jersey. And what better platform than Instagram? So basically, I would just every morning, really, I would just sit on the bus. I'd go on Instagram. I'd post a little, talk a little, just interact with as many people as I could. And day by day, it slowly started to build up until eventually what it is now. Well, it's a really cool deal. I know a lot of players on the team follow you and will retweet you, et cetera. So uh, great job by you. So, you know, it's interesting to me, you're 22, your entire life has been the Dan Snyder era. Like when people bring up the glory days of Joe Gibbs, is that like ancient history to you when you hear about, you know, people like Joe Theismann and Doug Williams and Mark Rippon? Yeah. And it really sucks that I wasn't, you know, like in that era, I guess. I haven't, seen too much winning i would say the best like the best year for me as a fan was probably 2012 just because rg3 yeah yeah but i would give anything to be able to you know like go back in time and see guys like john riggins and our monk and daryl green all of them playing yeah i mean it's, it's incredible how long it's been but it has been long i mean i have no memories of john riggins like it, it really is ancient history uh, for a lot of us here well in terms of the team right now I know you're optimistic, and I'm optimistic. I think there's a lot to like with this football team. What stands out to you specifically in terms of why you feel as bullish on the team as you do? Yeah, I mean, everybody I know usually crowns me as like a glass half full kind of guy, but like I feel like there's legitimate reasons for optimism when it comes to the state of the franchise right now. I feel like in all phases of the team, from the players to the coaching staff to management, I feel like they're just like leaps and bounds ahead of where they were just a few years ago. 
um, the roster like has actual direction now. Like I know they went seven and nine last year, but there's something about this seven and nine that's different from other seven and nines in the past because you know this roster is like really young, a lot of young budding talent. Whereas in the past, I mean the roster was kind of older, and you know there are a lot of iffy players, but. This roster has a ton of direction, and it seems like Ron Rivera is steering the ship. He's definitely steering it in the right direction. Do you view Washington as the favorite to win the NFC East this coming season, or would you go with, say, Dallas? Yeah, as optimistic as I am, I know a lot of fans probably are going to hate me saying this, but I think the Cowboys should be considered the favorites just because of who they have at quarterback. You know, if there was one thing about Washington that I'm just not like all that set on is quarterback. Like, I like Ryan Fitzpatrick to a degree, but he's obviously just like a one-year gap option, and you don't know if you're going to get the, the Fitz magic or the Fitz tragic. Yeah, that is the concern. It's so interesting to me, though, with Fitzpatrick, because you could argue his two best seasons have been his last two seasons. Like, he has become a different guy the last few years. If he can continue that this upcoming season, then you're going to have someone who's you know more than capable, especially off what Washington had at the quarterback position last season so with the quarterback position and the way it's been handled this offseason were you an advocate for trading up to take say Justin Fields or were you fine with Ron staying at 19 and not doing that um I mean I was definitely pro move up for a quarterback but it's not something it's not like a hill I was gonna live or die on but I do think that now there's gonna be just another year of you know, like asking that question you know who's gonna be the guy for the future yeah it is and uh we don't know beyond that Although to me, it's like with all these trade-ups for quarterbacks and drafts and so many of them not working out, if you don't love the guy, don't do it. And I think one thing that's been made pretty clear is Washington may have liked Fields or liked even you know other guys, but didn't love him. And if you don't love him, don't do it. Like, don't just do it to do it. Do it because you're really convinced the guy can be the guy. And I don't think that they were convinced of that with Justin Fields. Definitely. Yeah. No, it's definitely good to not just move up just to get a guy. Yeah, obviously that's how a lot of things in the past happen. Like Jared Goff, just not always a good idea. When it comes to Taylor Heineke and Kyle Allen, do you think there's something there? Do you think there's ultimately not much there with either guy? Uh, I mean, I really I like Taylor Heineke, and you know, like obviously that playoff game was insane. But I think it's insane that some people like actually want him to start because I mean, if you go back to before the playoff game, he was he was in the xfl he didn't even like win the starting job in the xfl and i'm not trying to like tear him down because i liked him a lot like his character and just everything about how he played in that game i do think he could become like a pretty good qb2 but to think of him as a starter i'm not even like in that arena of thought right now probably same thing with kyle allen Talking with Washington football team fan, observer, Jordan Asri, the man behind the ultra-popular Twitter account, at WFTeamJordan, and the man behind the ultra-popular Instagram account, at Football Team Today. The Washington defense, big steps forward from 2019 to 2020. What are your expectations for this defense in 2021? Um, I definitely expect them to improve. I know it's going to be harder to improve stats-wise, but there will still be ways to get better, definitely with the, the addition of Jamin Davis. Because Washington, for the last few years, has been lacking that true, you know, like alpha male linebacker that can, you know, run sideline to sideline, cover running backs, tight ends, hit the gaps, make the tackles. So I feel like putting him behind the defensive line that's already in place, I actually do think he has a good chance of winning Defensive Rookie of the Year. 
Yeah, he figures to play a ton, and he was a tackling machine at Kentucky, so no doubt he's uh, obviously a very good candidate for that. What would you say, if anything, worries you about the defense? What, what's like a potential fatal flaw with Washington's defense, if there is one? Yeah, I, I would say definitely still a linebacker because I know Jamin Davis is a good addition, but again, he's still a rookie, so there's always that chance of him you know, having like a bit of a learning curve. And then just the position as a whole, I'm still not extremely sold on like the depth of the position. I like Cole Holcomb. I don't love him. Uh, same with John Bostic, but a little bit less. I feel like he's kind of iffy. So there's not a whole lot of like, you know, like players at that position that you look at and say, okay, he's going to play and he's going to play well. Yeah. All right. I want to get your take on the name because I know you tweet about that a lot. It's a big issue, clearly, for all the obvious reasons. What is your ultimate preference for the new name? So before before I get into what my preference is, I just want to make it known that whatever the name becomes, I don't really care what it becomes. I'll still root for them all the same. You know, nothing's going to change. But I've been a pretty big Red Wolf advocate just because I love, I love the animal. I feel like there's a lot of ways you could tie that into the past of the team. Like you could still say, I know they probably won't want to say HTTR, but a lot of other fans could say that. And, you know, it'll still feel a little bit like the past. You could probably do some really cool things, you know, with a wolf theme. You are part of an age group that the team clearly is trying to reach out to here. Do you think the team is open to Red Wolves? Like we, we've seen, you know, the surveys with all the various names and so many of them are horrible, but Red Wolves is out there. Do you think the team is as open to Red Wolves as the fan base is? I've, I've seen, uh, they dropped uh, those polls a few weeks ago where they were asking fans to like pick a certain name. I saw Red Wolves on a few of them. I don't know how open they are to it. I know there's probably some trademark issues with it. I go back to other te- I'm pretty sure there's a college team with Red Wolves so there'd probably be a lot of stuff to figure out with that I feel like a lot of people are assuming Warriors is going to be the next name I don't know personally I'm not the biggest fan of that but again like I said I'll I'll root for them no matter what the name is uh has the team reached out to you because again you're the kind of guy the team is trying to cultivate here and you have this following I'm just curious has a team contacted you to get your thoughts on the name or get your thoughts on what people in your age group think about what the new name should be um no I would there hasn't been any like direct communication in regards to the name I have talked like back and forth with Jason right here and there but never really like about the name per se but it seems like it seems like they're pretty you know, like interested in finding out what the fans want. It seems like it's a pretty back and forth uh, dialogue. So, yeah. And when it comes to your interactions with fans, Red Wolves got a lot of traction on social media. But you know, sometimes it's like something gets a lot of traction, but it's not necessarily the most popular selection. Do you get the sense that right. Red Wolves is the most popular selection among the younger Washington football team fans? Yeah, I don't. I don't mean to speak for everyone, but I feel like it, it is, and it's really not close, like at all. Yeah. Um, it definitely has the most social media support of any name I've seen. But again, not all fans are on social media. You know, there's a lot of older fans that definitely aren't on social media. So I don't mean to like speak for the entire fan base as a whole, because I know there are some people that hate that name and they're entitled to their opinions and whatnot. But yeah, I'll, I'll root for them all the same, no matter what the name is. Good deal, man. Well, listen, congrats on your success. Uh, wish you nothing but more success and appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me on, Al. I appreciate it.
Well, another frustrating weekend for the Nationals. Another losing weekend for the Nationals. Things just aren't getting better. Uh, Not yet anyway. Maybe they will. Hopefully they will. But more and more, this just comes off like a team that just isn't very good, which was my fear going into this season. The Nats lost two or three games at the Philadelphia Phillies over the weekend. 2-1 win on Friday night, but then a 5-2 loss on Saturday, and then a 12-6 loss on Sunday afternoon. The Nats now are 1-4-1 over their last six series. The Nats now are 24-32 with a minus 31 run differential. The Nats are last in the National League East, two percentage points behind the Miami Marlins. The Nats are seven games behind the NL East leading New York Mets. These are not encouraging facts, my friends. These are, in fact, very disturbing facts. And they are facts that make you think like this just isn't a very good team. Like the question for so much of the season has been, is this a good team off to a bad start or is this just a bad team? And as time goes on, the latter appears to be the case. Like I said, this can change. Hopefully it does change. But for now, this is where we are. So before we move any further, my deepest sympathies to any of you listening who actually watched that game on Sunday. That game was brutal. The Nats 12-6 loss at the Phillies on Sunday afternoon. The game took four hours, 26 minutes. This was a nine-inning game, four hours, 26 minutes, The game featured a seven-run Phillies bottom of the fourth that lasted for about 40 minutes. The game featured the two teams combining to use 13 pitchers. The game included delays for an injured home plate umpire and the protective netting falling down. Anything that could make this game longer basically happened, except the rain delay. We did not have a rain delay on Sunday afternoon. We had like everything but a rain delay in the game. I mean, that is absurd. Four hours, 26 minutes for a nine-inning game. You talk about, like, trying to appeal to the younger fan. You talk about, you know, pace of play, length of game. How do you like that? Four hours, 26 minutes for a nine-inning game. Raise your hand if you have four and a half hours on a Sunday to spend watching a baseball game. And I say this as someone who loves baseball. You know that. I love the sport. I love talking about the sport. But good God, man, four and a half hours to get this thing in. But at least on Sunday, the Nats actually hit. Uh, Six runs, 10 hits, three walks, four for 11 with runners in scoring position. How about what was on display in games one and two of this series? More offensive ineptness from the Nats. The Nats in their 2-1 win at the Phillies on Friday night scored just the two runs, had just six hits and two walks, went one of four with runners in scoring position as Zach Wheeler allowed two runs in seven and a third innings on eight strikeouts. The Nats in their 5-2 loss at the Phillies on Saturday. Just four hits to go with five walks. 0 for 8 with runners in scoring position. Five Phillies relievers from a Phillies bullpen that isn't very good combined to allow one run in six and two-thirds innings on seven strikeouts. And the meat of the Nats lineup, the likes of Juan Soto, Josh Bell, Kyle Schwarber, Ryan Zimmerman, who pinch hit. Those four guys in that loss on Saturday a combined one for 12, although the one was a Josh Bell homer, but still one for 12 with five strikeouts and combined to leave 12 men on base. I mentioned Schwarber, bad series for him. So he was the Nats starting left fielder in all three games in the series. And I give him credit for that because Schwarber did not start the Nats 5-1 loss at the Atlanta Braves last Thursday afternoon due to hurting his right knee 
in diving to catch an Abraham Almonte pinch leadoff double in the bottom of the seventh of the Nats 5-3 win at the Braves on Wednesday night. So Schwarber only missed the one game due to the right knee ailment. But Schwarber did not have a good series at all. And I don't know if this is because of the right knee or just because he had a bad series. But Schwarber, over the course of the three games at the Phillies over the weekend, 0 for 12 with a walk and four strikeouts. Yes, he went hitless in the series. And understand, he went hitless serving as a middle-of-the-order bat for the Nationals. In fact, Kyle Schwarber in the 12-6 loss at the Phillies on Sunday afternoon was the Nats' cleanup batter. That's a problem when your cleanup batter isn't hitting. Uh, Schwarber on Sunday, 0-for-5 with two strikeouts, and he left six men on base. He struck out on six pitches with the bases loaded and one out in what ended up being a mere one-run third inning for the Nats. That was brutal. That was another instance this season of the Nationals having an inning tailor-made for like, you know, a three-run inning, a four-run inning, that kind of a thing. The Nats get just the one run in the inning. The Nats have been so bad this season with the bases loaded, and we saw that again on Sunday. Schwarber coming up small in that spot, and he wasn't the only one. Uh, Josh Harrison and Starling Castro continue to struggle in this series. Harrison was the Nats starting second baseman in games one and two, came off the bench in game three, one for seven with a single, a walk, and two hit by pitches. So he actually got on base at a decent clip, although, you know, two hit by pitches, I don't really give a guy that much credit for that. He did get the hit in his last plate appearance in the series. So, you know, maybe he leaves the series on a good note and that carries over into what's next for the Nats. I hope so. But Josh Harrison is supposed to be the Nats' top man off the bench, not an everyday player. Uh, certainly not the Nats' number two batter, and yet that's basically been the case here. You know, Josh Harrison was the Nats' number two batter in the game on Friday night. He was the Nats' number two batter in the game on Saturday. That, that's not what he is. That's not what he should be. Too much is being asked of Josh Harrison, and his stats for the season have come tumbling down. This is a guy who had an OPS well over 800 for a good chunk of time. Uh, the OPS has plummeted over the last, you know, week and a half or so. Uh, Harrison has not looked well. He needed that day off on Sunday. Jordy Mercer ended up being the Nats' second baseman and number seven batter for that 12-6 loss at the Phillies on Sunday afternoon. Mercer did have a one-out full count double in a Nationals two-run fourth despite having been down in the count at one point, 0-2. But he also had an error, a key error. Uh, Mercer failed to catch a fly ball in shallow right field for an error in the Phillies' seven-run fourth. Starling Castro mentioned him. Another bad series for him. Castro is just killing the Nats this season with his offense. He's been the Nats' starting third baseman. I get why. The Carter Keyboom flop. I'm not mad at Castro. It's not his fault here. But the issue is that Castro is routinely batting in the sixth spot, if not the five spot, and he's just not up to the task. Starling Castro starts all three games in this series. He goes two for 12 with two singles and no walks. The guy has no power. Starling Castro on the season now has a slash line of 244 as the batting average. 297 as the on-base percentage. I mean, the on-base percentage below 300 is awful. And a slugging percentage of just 311. Just atrocious in terms of the hitting. Uh, This is not fun, okay? This is not good. Starling Castro was the Nats' number five batter on Sunday. He went 0 for 5. He left five men on base. Now, there were some offensive bright spots in the series. I do want to note these. Uh, Juan Soto. Had a good series. Starting right fielder in all three games, he went three for 12 with a homer, a triple, a single, 
and two walks. The homer came in the 2-1 win at the Phillies on Friday night. A two-out opposite field solo shot to left field of a 97.6 mile per hour four-seam fastball from the Phillies starter Zach Wheeler in the top of the six for a 2-1 Nats lead. What was so interesting about this was that Soto was mean-mugging Wheeler uh, upon hitting the baseball. Soto looked at Wheeler upon hitting the baseball and then actually spit in Wheeler's direction, although I don't know that I was necessarily like an intentional spit. We know baseball players are spitting constantly. But anyway, Soto looked at Wheeler and spit upon hitting the baseball, then looked at Wheeler again while rounding the bases, and then looked at Wheeler again after crossing home plate. Something happened between Soto and Wheeler. You know, Soto does stuff like this. Even if he's not like angry at you, he likes to play stuff up. Uh, So that Soto swagger was back in effect with that home run for Soto on Friday night. It was great to see that. Now, Soto did have a defensive mishap in the game. He failed to catch the Reese Hoskins leadoff opposite field double off the wall in the bottom of the ninth. Was not an easy play, but was a play you like to see your right fielder make. Soto did not. He whiffed on an attempted leaping backhanded catch. He also had a bad game on Saturday, the 5-2 loss at the Phils, 0 for 4 with a walk and two strikeouts, left four men on base. But then Soto in the 12-6 loss at the Phillies on Sunday afternoon was back to being good. So first of all, he was an ads number two batter on Sunday. I like seeing that. That to me is what Davies should be doing. Trey Turner in the one spot, Juan Soto in the two spot. But Soto on Sunday, two for four with an RBI triple, an RBI single, and a walk. He had an RBI single in the top of the third, leadoff eight-pitch walk in the top of the fifth, despite having him down at the count at 1.02, and a two-out first-pitch RBI triple in the Nats' three-run six innings. So Soto's surge continued. Josh Bell had a good weekend. He was in that starting first baseman at all three games, four for 12 with a homer, a double, two singles, and a walk. Was nice to see that. He did have a defensive miscue, one out fielding error, and botching his fielding of a grounder by Gene Segura on an 0-2 pitch in the Phillies' four-run fourth and the 5-2 loss on Saturday. Also, Bell in the 12-6 loss at the Phillies on Sunday afternoon struck out on five pitches with the bases loaded and no outs in what ended up being, again, a mere one-run third inning for the Nats. But still, Josh Bell has been a lot better here over these last few weeks. We did not see much of Ryan Zimmerman in the series. He did not start any of the three games, was utilized as a pinch hitter twice, struck out both times, including striking out on three pitches with runners on first and second and two outs and what ended up being a mere one-run eighth inning for the Nats and that 5-2 loss at the Phillies on Saturday. Again, the Nats this season have had so many innings set up to be big innings, and instead the Nats just get one run in those innings. Trey Turner had a pretty good series, too. Starting shortstop, number one batter at all three games, four for 13 with a double, three singles, and a walk. Turner in the 12-6 loss on Sunday afternoon, two for five with two singles, had a single on a 1-2 pitch, and the Nats one-run third had a two-out RBI single on a 1-2 pitch, and the Nats three-run six inning. And Victor Robles had a nice game on Sunday. He was an Nats starting center fielder and number eight batter at all three games. Robles in the 12-6 loss on Sunday, two for three with two doubles, including an RBI double, had a hit by pitch, had a stolen base. He had the leadoff hit by pitch in the Nats one-run third. He had a one-out RBI double in the Nats two-run fourth, during which he scored off a steal of third base that yielded a throwing error by the Phillies catcher, JT Realmuto. Ed Robles had a one-out full-count double and the Nats three-run six inning. He struggled on Saturday, the 5-2 loss. 0 for 4 left four runners on base, but Robles was good in the game on Sunday. Also, uh, I do want to make mention of the catching situation. So Jan Gomes did not play at all in the series. Alex Avila was the Nats starting catcher in all three games, and Avila did a nice job. So Gomes did not play in any of the games due to right hamstring tightness. Avila over the three games, two for eight with a double, a single, and three walks. Uh, Avila was the Nats' number six batter 
in the 12-6 loss on Sunday afternoon, one for three with a single and a walk. And Davila was very good defensively in the series, including making one of the plays of the season. So 2-1 win at the Phillies on Friday night. First of all, Avila threw out JT Realmuto on an attempted steal of second base for the third out in the bottom of the sixth. And Davila made this outstanding defensive play, picking off a pinch runner in Travis Jankowski, who was pinch running for Reese Hoskins off his leadoff double, and then running all the way from the catcher position to the infield dirt between second and third base to tag out Jankowski for a huge first out in the bottom of the ninth inning. And to whatever extent momentum exists, okay, and I'm always kind of doubtful of this whole thing about momentum in sports, but to whatever extent momentum exists, that play by Avila altered the momentum in the game. Because seconds later, Daniel Hudson registered a strikeout, and you went from having a guy on second with nobody out to the bases being empty and two outs with the Nats nursing that 2-1 lead. But this is like something you see in Little League, where the catcher just runs the baseball into the rundown to tag out the runner. And that's exactly what Avila did. This guy, Travis Jankowski, made a boneheaded play, and Avila made Jankowski pay for it. Uh, That was some job by Alex Avila on Friday night. And then the 5-2 loss at the Phillies on Saturday, Avila threw out Real Muto again on an attempted steal of second base, uh, this time on a strike-him-out, throw-him-out double play that ended the bottom of the six. Avila, as we speak on this Monday, 5-12 for 12 on runners trying to steal this season. Gomes is 11-26 for 26 on runners trying to steal this season. So how about that catching tandem? Gomes and Davila, a combined 16 for 38 on runners trying to steal so far this season. That's outstanding. That's a great job by Gomes and Avila defensively on the year when it comes to controlling the running game. All right, as for the Nats pitching and losing two or three at the Phillies, we'll take the games in order. So Max Scherzer in game one was excellent again. The 2-1 win on Friday night, one run in seven and two-thirds innings on nine strikeouts versus five hits, which were a double and four singles. Did issue a walk, did issue a hit by pitch, but he threw 70 strikes versus 38 balls on 108 pitches. You can't say enough about how great Max Scherzer has been so far this season. I love, by the way, the theatrics of Max getting pulled on Friday night. David Martinez came out of the Nats dugout in the bottom of the eighth and right away signaled for Daniel Hudson. Didn't even wait to get to the mound to talk to Max and, you know, risk being talked out of pulling Max. Max, though, made it clear that he was good with being pulled. And uh, it was a great outing. It was another very good outing. Max Scherzer now on the season over 12 starts. ERA at 222, whip of 0.82, 104 strikeouts versus 15 walks. He's pitching at a Cy Young level. He's been the biggest bright spot by far of the national season. And look, I don't think it's a nice conversation to be having, and it's not something we want to do like totally in depth right now. But as the Nats continue to lose, I think trading away Max Scherzer in this a contract season is something the Nats should very much be on board with. Now, we're not there yet in terms of the Nats deciding to do that. You know, I still think you got to give this at least another month, if not longer. But this is on the table. This, to me, should be on the table, especially for a team like the Nats that does not have a farm system in good shape right now. And it's a compliment to Max Scherzer that we're talking about him in this way because he's been so good this season that he could bring you back multiple quality prospects. Now, is he going to bring you back like a bunch of top 10 prospects in the sport? No. But can he bring back some guys who help build the farm system back up? Yes, absolutely he can. And, you know, if you're really that worried about the end of Max Scherzer's time with the Nats, I mean, understand you can trade Max away and then re-sign him this offseason. 
That doesn't happen often, but it does happen. The New York Yankees did this with Aroldis Chapman after the 2016 season. The Orioles did this with Mike Bordick years ago after the 2000 season. You trade the guy in that season, and then you sign him back the following offseason. But Scherzer has been tremendous so far this year. Got to keep that in mind. As poorly as things have gone for the Nats, uh, that's how well things have gone for Max Scherzer so far this year. Joe Ross in game two of the series was mixed again. This is what Joe Ross is. He at times looks great. He at times looks bad. And you can see him look both great and bad in the same outing. We've now seen this from Ross in each of his last two outings. So this 5-2 loss at the Phillies on Saturday, Joe Ross allowed four runs, all unearned in six innings on four strikeouts versus three hits, which were a three-run homer and two singles, two walks, and a hit by pitch on 92 pitches. He also, by the way, had another hit. Ross has been a really good hitting pitcher so far this year. Leadoff full count single in the Nats one run third. But listen to the specifics of this latest mixed outing from Joe Ross. So he tossed three perfect innings, three perfect innings to get things going. Then gave up four runs, all unearned in the bottom of the fourth. Now, all of the runs were unearned thanks to that one outfielding error by Josh Bell, who botched his fielding of a grounder by Gene Segura on an 0-2 pitch. But Ross did not respond well to the error. It's a flaw in baseball's accounting that in an inning like this, a guy like Joe Ross has zero earned runs. He did not pitch as well as zero earned runs would suggest. So Ross issued a one-out hit-by-pitch of the ex-Nat Bryce Harper on a 1-2 pitch, gave up a one-out RBI single to Reese Hoskins, who hit an 0-2 pitch into no-man's land in left field, and then gave up the biggest blow, a two-out first-pitch three-run homer by Andrew McCutcheon on a bomb to left field on a hanging slider. And yet Ross does not get charged with any earned runs despite doing all of these things. Now, is that right? I mean, is that an accurate reflection of how Joe Ross pitched on Saturday? Anyway, he was great to start the game, struggled in that Phillies four-run fourth inning, but then was back to being good. Joe Ross tossed scoreless fifth and sixth innings. So this is what it is with Joe Ross. Like he's He's not consistently good enough to where you ever feel that good about him, but he's never that bad and so awful to where you're like, well, you got to get him out of the rotation. Like there have been some stretches here where you felt like, all right, he should be out and Eric Fetty should be in. But, you know, Eric Fetty is in this never ending absence due to being on the COVID-19 injured list. He tested positive for COVID-19, even though he got the vaccine, has never been symptomatic. Uh, and Ross has, has done enough lately to where it's like, again, you don't love what you have. But you don't hate it either. And so this is what it is with Joe Ross. 11 starts on the season, ERA of 480, whip of 134. Nats bullpen in games one and two of the series was largely good. Daniel Hudson and Brad Hand in the 2-1 win on Friday night combined for one and a third scoreless innings. Three Nats relievers in the 5-2 loss on Saturday combined to allow one run in two innings. Kyle McGowan tossed a perfect bottom of the seventh. Kyle Finnegan saved the Nats in the bottom of the eighth, kept an inning that could have been worse from being worse. Finnegan came into the game, runners at the corners, nobody out, but got three consecutive outs. The reason the Nats were in that jam was because Sam Clay in that bottom of the eighth faced three batters and recorded no outs. Speaking of Sam Clay... The Nats on Sunday went with a rare bullpen game. This is simply where a team just goes with a bunch of relievers, doesn't use a quote-unquote starting pitcher. And the Nats did this on Sunday for a variety of reasons. A, Steven Strasburg is on the 10-day injured list with the next drain. B, Eric Fetty, as I just talked about, is still coming back from the COVID-19 injured list, even though, again, he got COVID-19 
despite getting vaccinated. He was put on this COVID-19 injured list all the way back on May 19th, and he's still not off it, even though he's not symptomatic. I mean, it's just been crazy to me that Fetty has had to deal with this. He did the right thing. He got the vaccine. He still got COVID-19. Okay, we know that that can happen, but he's never been symptomatic. He should not have had to miss all the time that he's had to miss. Uh, Fetty did make a rehab start on Saturday for the high A Wilmington Blue Rocks, two runs in five innings. But how about this? That was attempt number three at Fetty's rehab outing because the first two games were postponed due to rain. Uh, Eric Fetty is just like perpetual dark cloud hanging over him with the way things go. Anyway, Strasburg on the 10-day IL, Fetty still on the comeback from the COVID-19 injured list. Nats don't have really anyone they like at the minor league level right now in terms of guys who are realistically ready to pitch a game at the major league level. And so the Nats went with a bullpen game on Sunday. And things got off to a good start. Austin both started the game through two perfect innings with two strikeouts. But he had to leave the game off getting hit by a pitch from the Philly starter, Vince Velasquez, in the top of the third. Both in attempting to bunt on a 3-1 pitch, took a 90.5 mile per hour four-seam fastball off his batting helmet and face. And unfortunately, uh, both suffered a broken nose. So not sure how long he'll be out, but that was really unfortunate, especially considering, like I said, both was doing well in the game. Now, Wander Suero then came in and he was good. He tossed a perfect bottom of the third. So through three innings, the bullpen game was going well. And then came the rest of the game. Then came, in fact, four Nats relievers specifically. Sam Clay, Kyle Finnegan, Paolo Espino, and Tanner Rainey. Those four guys combined to allow 12 runs, eight earned, in three innings. Clay and Finnegan combined to allow seven runs, three earned, in a painful and brutally long bottom of the fourth in which the Phillies scored the seven runs on, get this, three singles, four walks, one of which was allowed by Paolo Espino, an error by second baseman Jordy Mercer, a fielder's choice, and a strikeout wild pitch. It was the inning from hell. It was the inning that refused to end. And it was the inning in which the Phillies again scored seven runs despite never having a hit better than a single. It was incredible to see and not in a good way. Uh, By the way, Sam Clay, bad again in this game. Sam Clay now has allowed six runs in three innings on nine hits and three walks over his last six appearances. I don't know that the Nats can continue on with Sam Clay at the major league level right now with the way things are going with him. I mean, he's a ground ball specialist. He at times has looked good, but lately it's been batting practice when Sam Clay has come into the game. Uh, Espino, he gave up two more runs in the bottom of the fifth on a one-out double by Andrew McCutcheon on a hit that was nearly a homer, and then came an actual homer, a one-out two-run homer by Brad Miller on a one-two pitch. Then came Rainey, and man, is Rainey having a bad year. He allowed three runs in the bottom of the six on a leadoff hit by pitch of Nick Maton on a one-two pitch, a double by Odubel Herrera, and a three-run homer by JT Realmuto. Take a listen now to the stats for Tanner Rainey on the season. He has an ERA of 10.57 over 15 and a third innings. He has been brutal so far this year. Tanner Rainey was so good in 2020. He had an ERA that season of 266 over 20 into third innings. Small sample size, I'll grant you that, but it looked like Tanner Rainey was coming on. This year, so far, horrendous. ERA of 1057 
over 15 and a third innings. And those 15 and a third innings, by the way, have come over 20 appearances. I mean, I know 15 and a third innings isn't the biggest sample size, but it's not nothing for a reliever. And again, that's over 20 games. Dude's got an ERA of 10.57. I mean, my God, is that bad? Uh, So it was rough. You know, the bullpen approach did not end up working out. Clay, Finnegan, Espino, Rainey, all very disappointing. Kyle McGowan was good. He relieved Rainey, tossed two scoreless innings with five strikeouts. Uh, McGowan's having a nice season. I want to see more of him in some higher leverage situations. McGowan's ERA now is at 235. His whip is at 091 over 15 and a third innings. So yes, do the compare and contrast. Tanner Rainey over 15 and a third innings on the season. ERA at 1057. Kyle McGowan over 15 and a third innings on the season. ERA of 235. But like I said, the Nats were in this position because they just don't have much of anything to go to right now in terms of starting pitching depth. The farm system is barren at the moment in terms of high-level pitching prospects, certainly those who would be realistically ready to pitch a game at the major league level. I mean, did you happen to catch this over the last few days? The Nats on Friday announced the signing of Josh Rogers to a minor league contract and assigned him to AAA Rochester. Who is Josh Rogers? Josh Rogers is a man who was released by the Orioles AAA affiliate, Norfolk, on Monday. The O's acquired Rogers from the New York Yankees in the Zach Britton trade in July 2018. So a pitcher discarded by the tanking and pitching-starved Orioles. That's the pitcher who the Nats signed to a minor league contract on Friday. And let me make this clear. I don't blame the Nats for signing Josh Rogers. I think the Nats should be signing people like Josh Rogers. You have nothing to lose in signing a guy like Josh Rogers. But what does it say that a guy not good enough for the Orioles is gobbled up by the Nationals? I mean, what does that tell you, man, about the lack of starting pitching depth for the Nats? No game, mercifully, for the Nats on Monday. They then have a two-game series at the American League-leading Tampa Bay Rays. What a job by the Rays again in 2021. And notice I said the American League leading Tampa Bay Rays, not the American League East leading Tampa Bay Rays. The Rays are atop the entire American League, a record of 38 and 23. The Rays have the second best run differential in the AL at plus 75. No team in major pro sports does more with less than the Rays. They put every other team in baseball to shame. They give every other team in baseball no excuse. You cannot use the payroll excuse. The Rays have every reason in the world to be awful every year. Very low payroll, horrible attendance at Tropicana Field, and yet the Rays almost every season are in contention, even though the Rays compete in the cauldron that is the American League East with big market, big money teams like the New York Yankees and Boston Red Sox. So this is a two-game series upcoming for the Nats at the Rays. Game one, Tuesday night at 7-10, John Lester will start. Game two, Wednesday night at 7-10, Patrick Corbin will start. Well, go figure the Orioles. They began the season 15-16. and 16. Not bad when you're a tanking team. The O's then lost 21 of 23 games, but now has come the O's winning four of five games, including winning two of three games against the Cleveland Indians at Oriole Park at Camden Yards over the weekend. A 3-1 win on Friday night, a 10-4 loss on Saturday, but then an 18-5 win 
on Sunday afternoon. The O's are an American League worst, 21 and 38, but we on this Monday can hear from the great Joe Angel. And the Orioles again in the win column. That's right, Joe. The O's were back in the win column on Sunday. And like I said, in the win column, remarkably, in four of the last five games now. Now, we should say this, and this is very bad news from the weekend. John Means now is on the 10-day injured list. Uh, John Means left to start in game two of the series with the Indians due to injury and was placed on the 10-day IL on Sunday with a left shoulder strain. The good news is that an MRI exam on Means' left shoulder revealed no structural damage, according to manager Brandon Hyde. But Means in the Orioles' 10-4 loss to the Indians at Camden Yards on Saturday lasted for just two-thirds of an inning. He allowed two runs on a leadoff full-count homer by Cesar Hernandez and a two-out solo homer by Harold Ramirez, despite him having been down to the count at 1.02, then gave up a two-out single to Eddie Rosario, despite him having been down to the count at 1.12, and that was it. Uh, Means got pulled in favor of reliever Adam Pletko. The O's announced Means as having left the game due to left shoulder fatigue, and now he's on the 10-day IL with, again, a left shoulder strain. Now, I think this does perhaps help to explain what had been happening with Means, and I talked about this on the podcast Means had been iffy in two of his three previous starts. Uh, the 3-1 seven-inning loss at the Chicago White Sox in game two of a doubleheader the previous Saturday, May 29th. Means in that game gave up three runs in five innings. That was unmeans-like. And then Means in a 9-7 loss to the Tampa Bay Rays at Camden Yards on May 19th allowed four runs in six into third innings. Again, unmeans-like. Then we get what we got on Saturday. So maybe now some of these recent lackluster starts for John Means make sense. But clearly, you want to make sure he's okay here with the left shoulder strain. Uh, Means in 2020 did deal with left arm fatigue. So this is not the first time that Means has dealt with a left shoulder slash left arm issue. He obviously has been so good overall so far this season. But a bit of a bump here. And, you know, you just got to cross your fingers and hope that he comes back comes back okay and is able to stay healthy the rest of the season. Again, the good news here is that the MRI exam did reveal no structural damage. But there's a lot to like with what the Orioles did over the weekend in winning two or three over the Indians. So three Orioles in particular had big series offensively. Cedric Mullins went nuclear over the final two games of the series. He finished the series nine for 12 with three homers, a double, five singles, three walks, four RBI, and five runs. Mullins at one point reached base in each of 11 consecutive plate appearances. The season that Cedric Mullins is having really is something special. Cedric Mullins' slash line as we speak on this Monday, a 322 batting average, a 390 on base percentage, and a 533 slugging percentage. Mullins in the 10-4 loss to the Indians at Camden Yards on Saturday, five for five with two homers, three singles, two RBI, and three runs. He had a full count leadoff homer in the bottom of the third, despite having been down at the count at 1.12, and a one-out solo homer in the bottom of the fifth. And Mullins made a great catch. He had a diving catch while running to his right to rob Cesar Hernandez of a hit in left center field for the second out in the top of the fourth. And this was an especially impressive catch when you consider that the ball was slicing 
off the bat of the lefty batting Hernandez. That is not an easy ball to read. Mullins read it and made the terrific diving catch. Then in the 18-5 win over the Indians at Camden Yards on Sunday afternoon, Mullins in that game, a leadoff full count homer in the bottom of the first, despite having been down in the count at 1.02. A one-out RBI single in the Orioles' six-run second, despite having been down in that count at 1.12. A leadoff double on which he was thrown out at third in the Orioles' five-run fourth. A leadoff full count walk in the bottom of the fifth and a one-out four-pitch walk in the Orioles' five-run seventh. It felt like every inning Mullins was coming up to bat, and every inning Mullins was getting on base. Ryan Mountcastle had a big series. Check out these numbers. Six for 12 with two homers, two doubles, two singles, five RBI, and five runs. I love what we're seeing from Mountcastle right now. I've talked about this. This season for the Orioles is not about wins and losses. Don't get caught up and the wins and the losses. Like, yes, the Orioles have won four or five. Okay, fine. It means nothing in the big picture. What means something is what these younger players are doing. Cedric Mullins on the rise. Ryan Mountcastle on the rise. This is the stuff that matters. Ryan Mountcastle now has raised his OPS for the season by 153 points, beginning with games on May 22nd. Ryan Mountcastle was not having a good season. He had been one of the disappointments for the O's this season. Not no more, he ain't. His OPS has surged from 576 to 729 since the start of games on May 22nd. Mountcastle in the 3-1 win over the Indians at Camden Yards on Friday night. A one-out, two-run homer on a 1-2 pitch in the bottom of the seventh for a 2-1 Orioles lead. Mountcastle in the 10-4 loss of the Indians at Camden Yards on Saturday. First pitch leadoff double in the bottom of the fourth, one out solo homer in the bottom of the sixth. Mountcastle in the 18-5 win over the Indians at Camden Yards on Sunday afternoon. Leadoff single in the Orioles six-run second, two-out full count RBI single in the Orioles five-run fourth, and a two-out RBI double on an 0-2 pitch in the Orioles five-run seventh. And DJ Stewart was very good in games one and three of the series. Stewart in the 3-1 win over the Indians at Camden Yards on Friday night. Two-out full count double in the bottom of the second and a one-out first pitch bunt single in the bottom of the seventh. And Stewart in the 18-5 win over the Indians at Camden Yards on Sunday afternoon. Single in the Orioles six-run second. Leadoff single in the bottom of the third. Two-out RBI single in the Orioles five-run fourth and a two-out four-pitch walk in the bottom of the sixth. Mullins, Mountcastle, Stewart. These are the building blocks, people. If you're an Orioles fan, these are the people to be paying attention to. And there are others to be paying attention to, but this is what you want to see, the younger players doing well. Speaking of that, Keegan Aiken. How about the job he did in game one of the series? The 3-1 win over the Indians at Camden Yards on Friday night. His best outing up until this point of his major league career. Keegan Aiken on Friday night, five scoreless innings on four strikeouts versus three hits, all singles into walk. He threw, get this, 64 of his 86 pitches for strikes. 64 strikes versus 22 balls in the outing. Just a great job by Aiken in just his second major league start of the season. His first came in that 3-1 loss at the Chicago White Sox now two Sunday afternoons ago, May 30th. And he was pretty good in that game. One run in four and two-thirds innings on four strikeouts versus five hits, a homer and four singles and two walks. He in that game had 60 strikes versus 34 balls, 
on 94 pitches. Not bad for a guy who was demoted to AAA Norfolk. The O's optioned him to AAA Norfolk on March 26th off Aiken having been awful in the Grapefruit League season. Aiken over four games this past exhibition season, 10 runs in nine innings on 15 hits and seven walks versus 14 strikeouts. Like I said, got option to AAA Norfolk on March 26th, got recalled from Norfolk on May 10th, and he's looked pretty good here over his two starts on the season. Aiken, a second round pick in the 2016 draft. He's in his age 26 season. Uh, Jorge Lopez was so-so in game three of the series. The 18-5 win over the Indians at Camden Yards on Sunday afternoon. Three runs in five innings. But, you know, you can work with something like that. And clearly the Orioles did in putting up 18 runs. One other thing from this series, Hunter Harvey is back. The O's on Friday afternoon reinstated Harvey from the 60-day injured list. He'd been on that since March 16th with a left oblique strain. Harvey in the 3-1 win over the Indians at Camden Yards on Friday night made his 2021 regular season major league debut. Did give up a run in the top of the sixth on a one-out single by Jose Ramirez, followed by a one-out RBI triple by Harold Ramirez. Uh, Harvey in the Orioles' 18-5 win over the Indians at Camden Yards on Sunday afternoon. A scoreless sixth inning and the velocity very much there. His four-seam fastball velocity was ranging between 93 and 97 miles per hour. Look, first of all, with Hunter Harvey, he's got the greatest look any pitcher has ever had, okay? He's got a mullet with a mustache. I mean, Hunter Harvey is like straight out of Ocean City, okay? I mean, let's just call it like it is, all right? If you've ever been to Ocean City, you have seen a lot of people who look like Hunter Harvey, okay? So that's where you start with the guy. But he is so talented. He just has not been able to stay healthy. The O's took Harvey with the number 22 overall pick in the 2013 MLB draft. He still is in just his age 26 season, so he's still pretty young. He's still in just his mid-20s. This is a guy who throws so hard. This is a guy who's got lights out stuff. This is just a guy who has dealt with a truckload of injuries. He just can't stay healthy. That's been the issue for Hunter Harvey. It's never been his talent. It's just been his ability to stay healthy. And my God, has he had a hard time staying healthy. Uh, Harvey missed the entire 2015 season due to a right elbow strain. He underwent Tommy John surgery in July 2016. He, in 2018, dealt with right elbow discomfort and a right shoulder problem. He, in August 2019, made his major league debut and looked great. One run in five and a third innings with 10 strikeouts over his first six appearances, but he then pitched in just one game the rest of the season due to right bicep soreness. And then we had what happened this past spring training. Harvey, on March 12th, threw just one pitch in a Grapefruit League game, then left the game due to the left oblique injury, ended up being on the Orioles' 60-day injured list from March 16th to June 4th. But he is back. Hopefully, he stays healthy, because if he does, Hunter Harvey can be a dynamic reliever. Like, he can be an ace reliever. He's got that kind of stuff. Hunter Harvey's average four-seam fastball velocity over the 2019 and 2020 regular seasons per Sports Info Solutions was 98 miles per hour. This guy has stuff that plays. Again, he's just got to stay healthy. No game for the O's on Monday. They then have a two-game series against the National League East leading New York Mets at Camden Yards, Tuesday night and Wednesday night.
All right, so Wizards general manager Tommy Shepard last Thursday said that a decision on whether the team will retain Scott Brooks likely will take some time. I think it's important to say likely will take time publicly because I do think that it's entirely possible that a decision on Brooks's future already has been made. Just listening to Shepard last Thursday, it sounded to me like he's at least leaning toward keeping Brooks, but A, that may have just been posturing by Shepard, and B, we don't know to what extent the Brooks decision is entirely Shepard's, i.e., if the owner, Ted Leonsis, wants one thing and Brooks wants another, Teddy is going to get his way. All of that said, I don't think it's the worst thing in the world that the Wizards take their time on Brooks, and one of the biggest reasons is to see what else ends up being out there. The NBA is a league in which surprising head coaching changes happen every offseason. You don't know who is available until you do know who is available. And we had two head coaching ousters since the last installment of this podcast. The Portland Trailblazers on Friday announced a mutual parting of the ways with head coach Terry Stotts. Stotts, by the way, who had been the Blazers head coach for nine seasons. I did not realize that. He was named Blazers head coach in August 2012, made the NBA playoffs, in each of his last eight seasons as Blazers head coach, that's not a nothing accomplishment given that Portland, of course, plays in the much better Western Conference as compared to the Eastern Conference. Stotts leaves the Blazers as the second winningest head coach in franchise history after Jack Ramsey. And then the Orlando Magic on Saturday announced a mutual parting of the ways with head coach Steve Clifford. Clifford was the Magic's head coach for three seasons, led the team to the NBA playoffs in his first two seasons as Magic head coach, 2018-2019 and 2019-2020. And none of this is to say that the Wizards should go after Stotts or Clifford. I bring this up only to point out that you never know who may become available to you in a given NBA offseason. The other thing with the Wizards taking their time on Brooks is that the Wiz may be waiting for a team's season to end. Uh, There is momentum and has been for a while for Wes Unseld Jr. Yes, the son of the late, great former bullet Wes Unseld. Wes Unseld Jr. is the associate head coach of the Denver Nuggets. The Nuggets season, of course, is ongoing. And check out this tweet from Sam Vecini, senior NBA and NBA draft writer for The Athletic on Saturday. Quote, the guy that teams should take a look at, in my opinion, is Wes Unseld Jr. in Denver, associate head coach and runs defense in Denver, making a defense work with Jokic, who isn't a disaster but has limitations, is extremely impressive. Plus the way they've held it together post-injuries, end quote. So just some things to be thinking about as we wait on a Wizards decision, at least publicly, on Scott Brooks. While we're talking Wizards, how about what was announced this past Friday? Monumental Basketball on Friday announced that Dr. Katherine Evans has been named to the newly created position of Vice President of Research and Information Systems. Uh, Dr. Evans, in her role, per the press release put out by Monumental Basketball, will, quote, oversee Monumental Basketball's research department supporting the Wizards Mystics Go-Go and Wizards District Gaming, end quote. So Dr. Katherine Evans is very accomplished. She received undergraduate and graduate degrees from Harvard University and UC Berkeley, ultimately earning a doctorate in biostatistics from Harvard. Monumental Basketball plucked Dr. Katherine Evans from the Toronto Raptors. Prior to joining the Wizards, Dr. Evans served as the Director of Strategic Research for the Toronto Raptors. Uh, Per the press release that was put out by Monumental Basketball, 
Dr. Evans, in that role for the Raptors, quote, advised various departments, including the front office coaching and medical departments. She oversaw the data sources to build a draft prospects database, as well as build models for player projections of draft prospects. Dr. Evans was also instrumental in helping analyze methods and build models for player evaluation and on-court strategy, end quote. And I bring up the Raptors thing because remember what was out there just a few years ago, 2019, the Wizards wanting Toronto Raptors president Masai Ujiri. ESPN NBA insider Adrian Wojnarowski reported literally minutes after the Raptors won at the Golden State Warriors in Game 6 of the NBA Finals to win the NBA title in June 2019 that the Wizards were ready to offer Ujiri, quote, a deal that could approach $10 million annually and deliver him the opportunity for ownership equity, end quote. Now, just hours later, we got a contradicting report from Wizards insider Candace Buckner of the Washington Post saying that, quote, a person close to the organization said, that the Wizards have no imminent plans to request permission to speak to Ujiri, nor has monumental sports and entertainment arranged an offer at this time, end quote. Obviously, the Wizards ended up not getting Ujiri, but his contract with the Raptors reportedly is set to expire after this season. So if the Wizards are still hot and heavy after Masai Ujiri, assuming that the Wizards were hot and heavy after Masai Ujiri. And when a guy like Wojnarowski reports something like that, again, literally minutes after the Raptors won at the Warriors in Game 6 of the 2019 NBA Finals to win the NBA championship, I tend to think the Wizards did want Masai Ujiri. It is notable, right, that the Wizards just announced this hiring of Dr. Catherine Evans, who had been with the Toronto Raptors. But here's what's most notable about the hiring of Dr. Catherine Evans. This is an historic hiring. She becomes the first woman to head the research or analytics department of an NBA franchise. And this is a continuation of a recent trend, right? Monumental Basketball hiring Dr. Evans as vice president of research and information systems is another in a recent string of historic hirings of females in sports. We just had one with the Washington football team a few months ago. January, Washington officially named Jennifer King. As assistant running backs coach, she became the first black female assistant position coach in NFL history, just the second female assistant position coach in the NFL. She served as a four-year coaching intern for Washington in 2020, and King in the Washington press release announcing her as assistant running backs coach was credited with helping running back J.D. McKissick as a pass catcher in 2020. Quote, King worked closely with running back J.D. McKissick and developing his skills in the past game, McKissick finished the regular season with 80 receptions, which is the second most in the season for a Washington running back in franchise history. End quote. We had what the Miami Marlins did this past November, hiring Kim Ng as their general manager, making her the first woman to serve as GM of a team in MLB, the NFL, the NBA, or the NHL, and also the first person of East Asian descent to serve as a GM in MLB. So this has been a thing here lately. Teams in major pro sports hiring women to positions of significance. And to me, major pro sports teams hiring women to positions of significance is smart. Put aside the human and cultural reasons for major pro sports teams hiring women being good, okay? This is not some lecture on diversity or you got to be woke or anything like that. Just think about this practically. Women for years have not received significant jobs 
in major pro sports for whatever reasons. You know, the idea that women aren't good enough for or deserving enough of these jobs, subconscious bias from owners, women not being well-connected enough to get the jobs, whatever the reasons. It was always ridiculous to think that literally zero women were worthy of serving as a general manager, or in the case of the Wizards, the head of an analytics department, okay? Like the the notion of all these jobs should go to men because there are literally zero women worthy of these jobs is insane. So if a major pro sports team is at the forefront of hiring a woman for a significant job, that team essentially has its pick of the best woman available. I mean, think about that. The lack of women in major pro sports is a market inefficiency that has been waiting to be exposed. This pool of millions of people that pro sports teams just hasn't touched for whatever reason. Well, here you have now the Washington football team having capitalized on this market inefficiency in hiring Jennifer King as assistant running backs coach. And now the Wizards have tapped into this market inefficiency in hiring Dr. Evans to run the team's analytics department. This is smart. You get the best of the best. I mean, I told you about Dr. Evans' credentials. She earned a doctorate in biostatistics from Harvard, okay? Uh, It's hard to not be really smart and do something like that. So this kind of thing is forward-thinking and progressive. And again, it's not just about like the cultural reasons. It's just about the practical sports reasons. You get yourself really good people when you tap into markets that others are afraid to tap into or haven't tapped into for whatever reason. So I like this hiring by the Wizards. I think it makes a lot of sense. And hopefully, Dr. Catherine Evans is part of a great run here with the Wizards, no matter who the head coach is moving forward. The damn Washington Wizards! Exactly. All right, that will do it for you and me for now. Let me know what you think about anything and everything. Hit me up on Twitter at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Tuesday's installment of the pod will include a lot on the Washington football team. Various Washington assistant coaches are due to speak via Zoom press conference on Monday. So we'll see what comes of that. Have a great rest of your Monday. I'll talk to you on Tuesday. Not very good. For the ones who know safety isn't a catchphrase, it's a culture. And the ones who help make sure everyone makes it home safe. For the safety-minded who watch everyone's backs, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as safety assessments and training to keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.